discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. The reorganization of the world's societies, cultures, economies, and politics seem to be occurring at an ever-rapid clip. International bodies controlled by technocrats all seem to be telling us and the governments of the world, quote-unquote, how it's going to be, and why it is, quote, all for our own good, end quote. A relatively small group of individuals are actually redefining what healthy means, how we should think about money, food, technology, ideologies, the weather, and even each other. These people have formed a technocratic infrastructure with a reach and wrongheadedness that boggles the mind, and when the implications of their policies are realized, it terrorizes the heart. But this juggernaut of pathological groupthink did not spring up overnight and did not come from nowhere. Someone, and their groups, had to come up with the scientific and philosophical doctrines that dictated the logic and reasoning behind such transhumanist socialist, authoritarian, and eugenic policies and developments as we're seeing today. To learn a little bit more about how all of this came to be, let us turn to Matthew J. L. Eric, journalist, lecturer, and my very special guest for tonight's edition of Open Mic Night. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Record. The following is taken from part one of a three-part series that puts some giant historical figures in a whole new light and shows how these famous personalities, thinking, and huge influence have shaped an agenda for control that is as pervasive as it is monstrous. The entire three parts can be found on the website canadianpatriot.org, and I of course shall include a link to that on today's show notes. Now, without further ado, I present to you Part 1, How the Unthinkable Became Thinkable, Eric Lander, Julian Huxley, and The Awakening of Sleeping Monsters, by Matthew Errett. 
As much as it might cause us a fair deal of displeasure, and even an upset stomach, to consider such ideas as the hold eugenics has on our presently troubled era, I believe that ignoring such a topic really does no one any favors in the long run. This is especially serious, as leading World Economic Forum darlings like Yuval Harari flaunt such concepts as quote-unquote the new global useless class, which artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, automation, and the fourth industrial revolution is supposedly ushering in. Other Davos creatures, like Klaus Schwab, call openly for a microchipped global citizenry capable of interfacing with a global web with a single thought, while Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg promote Neuralinks to quote-unquote keep humanity relevant by merging with computers in a new epoch of evolutionary biology. Leading Darwinian geneticists like Sir James Watson and Sir Richard Dawkins openly defend eugenics while a technocracy consolidates itself in a governing station using a quote-unquote great reset as an excuse to usher in a new post-nation state era. If there is something fundamentally evil lurking behind these processes which has any connection to the Anglo-American rise of fascism and eugenics nearly a century ago, then let's at least have the courage to explore that possibility. It was, after all, only by looking at this ugliness 80 years ago that patriots were able to take appropriate measures to prevent a banker's technocratic dictatorship in 1933 and again during World War II. So perhaps a similar display of courage to think the unthinkable might be worth the effort for those who might find themselves in a similar situation today. 70 years ago, as the Allies were consolidating their victory over the Nazi machine, and as the Nuremberg Tribunals were quickly being arranged, a new strategy was set into motion by the very same forces that had put vast energy, money, and resources into the rise of fascism as the quote-unquote miracle solution of post-World War I economic chaos that had spread across Europe and the USA. It is among the greatest scandals of our age that the Wall Street slash City of London machine that financed Hitler and Mussolini as battering rams for a new world order were never actually brought to justice. Although Franklin Roosevelt managed to put a leash on Wall Street between 1933 to 1945 while setting the world stage for a beautiful post-war vision of win-win cooperation, the darker forces of the financier oligarchy who wanted only to establish a global unipolar system of governance not only avoided punishment, but wasted no time to regain their lost hegemony before the war had come to a close. One of the conceptual grand strategists of this process was a man named Julian Sorrell Huxley, born 1887, died 1975. Celebrated as a biologist, and social reformer, Julian was a devout, long-life member of the British Eugenics Society, serving alongside John Maynard Keynes as secretary and later as its president. Julian was a busy man who, along with his brother Aldous, worked hard to fill the very large shoes of their grandfather Thomas, aka Darwin's Bulldog. While simultaneously managing the post-World War II eugenics movement, Julian found himself setting in 
into motion the modern environmental movement as founder of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature in 1948, co-founding the World Wildlife Fund in 1961, created the term transhumanism, and also founding an immensely influential United Nations body called the United Nations Education, Science, and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, in 1946, which he ran as Director General until 1948. The mandate for the new organization was set out clearly in Huxley's 1946 UNESCO, its purpose and its philosophy. Quote, the moral for UNESCO is clear. The task laid upon it of promoting peace and security can never be wholly realized through the means assigned to it, education, science, and culture. It must envisage some form of world political unity, whether through a single world government or otherwise, as the only certain means of avoiding war. In its educational program, it can stress the ultimate need for a world political unity and familiarize all peoples with the implications of the transfer of full sovereignty from separate nations to a world organization. End quote. To what end would this so-called world political unity be aimed? Several pages later, Huxley's vision is laid out in all of its twisted detail. Quote, At the moment, it is probable that the indirect effect of civilization is dysgenic instead of eugenic, and in any case, it seems likely that the dead weight of genetic stupidity, physical weakness, mental instability, and disease proneness, which already exist in the human species, will prove too great a burden for real progress to be achieved. Thus, even though it is quite true that any radical eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible, it will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care and that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake, so that much that is now unthinkable may at least become thinkable. End quote. After the world got the chance to see what a eugenics program looked like under the full support of a fascist social engineer, it would be no exaggeration to say that it lost a good deal of popularity in the eyes of a world population still very much connected to traditional cultural institutions like Christianity, patriotism, and respect for sacredness of life. Even though 30 U.S. states and two Canadian provinces had legalized eugenics policies between 1907 to 1945, including forced sterilization of the unfit. The statistical science and political application of eugenics ground to a screeching halt by the end of World War II, and as Huxley iterated in his manifesto, something new had to be done. Huxley also worked very closely with London's Tavistock Clinic that received funding from both Rockefeller and Macy Foundations throughout the 1930s to the 1950s, led by a psychiatrist named Brigadier General John Rawlings Rees. Tavistock can be best understood as the psychiatric branch of the British Empire, established in 1921, which innovated psychiatric techniques using mixtures of Pavlovian behavior 
behaviorism and Freudian theories to influence group behavior in a variety of ways. Early on, the clinic explored the extreme mental conditions of shell shock victims who suffered cases of psychological deconstruction during the terrors of trench warfare, recognizing the high degree of malleability in these subjects, as outlined by a brilliant 1996 EIR report by L. Wolf, the idea behind Tavistock's was always driven by a goal to figure out how the brain might be quote-unquote depatterned and deconstructed in order to be reconstructed anew like a blank slate with the hopes that this insight into individuals might be replicated later among broader social groups and even whole nations. Many of this research was applied in the form of MK Ultra within the USA and will be the subject of a future report. One prominent psychiatrist who spent years working with Rees at Tavistock was a Canadian named G. Brock Chrisholm. In 1948, Chrisholm founded a UN-affiliated body called the World Health Organization with the aim of promoting mental and physical health of the world, a noble endeavor carrying much responsibility and power, requiring a leader with exceptional insight into the nature of sickness and health. Sadly, based upon his own sick views of the nature of mankind and society, Chrisholm was certainly the wrong man for the job. Among the great the greatest causes of war and mental sickness in Chrisholm's mind were not to be found in imperialism or economic injustice, but rather in society's belief in right and wrong. Writing in 1946, Chrisholm laid out the purpose of quote-unquote good psychotherapy and education, saying, quote, the reinterpretation and eventual eradication of the concept of right and wrong, which has been the basis of child training, the substitution of intelligent and rational thinking for faith in the certainties of old people. These are the belated objectives of practically all effective psychotherapy, end quote. But it wasn't simply the concept of right and wrong or faith in the certainties of old people which had to be eradicated, but monotheistic religion, family, and patriotism. Speaking eight years later, Chrisholm said, quote, to achieve world government, it is necessary to remove from the minds of men their individualism, loyalty to family tradition, national patriotism, and religious dogmas, end quote. Once UNESCO and the WHO were firmly in place, a third organization was created to drive the funding and the practice of global mental health. As outlined by historian Anton Chaikin, funded primarily by the Macy Foundation, the World Federation of Mental Health, WFMH, was created in 1948. The Macy Foundation itself was created in 1930 under the leadership of General Marlboro Churchill, cousin to Winston, who had been in charge of covert military intelligence from 1919 to 1929 in the form of the quote-unquote Black Chamber. His new foundation was a part of the Rockefeller machine and used as a conduit to pour money into quote-unquote health sciences with a focus on eugenics. The U.S. technical coordinator to the conference that created the WFMH made the new organization's origins 
clearly known. Nina Ridnour wrote, quote, The World Federation for Mental Health had been created upon the recommendation of the United Nations World Health Organization and UNESCO because they needed a non-governmental mental health organization with which they could cooperate. End quote. And just who would become the first director general of the WFMH? While still acting as the head of London's Tavistock Clinic, Brigadier General John Rawlings Rees was put in charge of the new body by none other than arch-racist Montague Norman, head of the Bank of England, who had created the operation out of his National Association for Mental Health, run out of his London Thorpe Lodge home. Describing this strategic battle plan to reform society, Rees said, quote, If we prepare to come out into the open and to attack the social and national problems of our day, then we must have the shock troops, and these cannot be provided by psychiatry based wholly in institutions. We must have mobile teams of psychiatrists who are free to move around and make contacts with the local area. End quote. The idea of mobile teams of psychiatric shock troops was an idea advanced by leading grand strategist Lord Bertrand Russell, who had written in 1952's Impact of Science on Society, quote, I think the subject which will be of most importance politically is mass psychology. Its importance has been enormously increased by the growth of modern methods of propaganda. Of these, the most influential is what is called education. Religion plays a part, though a diminishing one. The press, the cinema, and the radio play an increasing part. It may be hoped that in time, anybody will be able to persuade anybody of anything if he can catch the patient young and is provided by the state with money and equipment." End quote. Over the ensuing years, UNESCO, the WHO, and WFMH worked in tandem to coordinate hundreds of influential sub-organizations, universities, research labs, and covert science, including the CIA's MKUltra, in order to bring about the desired quote-unquote mentally healthy society cleansed of its connections to Christianity, faith in truthfulness, national patriotism, or family. By 1971, the world was ripe for a big change. The baby boomer targets of this vast social engineering experiment had been inundated by a vast arsenal of cultural warfare on every level. While LSD was spread across campuses of America and assassinations of Western leaders who resisted the new age of wars in Southwest Asia became the norm. The baby boomers watched as their loved ones returned from Vietnam in body bags. Not trusting anyone over 30, became the new wisdom as love of country was suffocated under the unnatural spread of Anglo-American imperialism abroad and COINTELPRO-style operations at home. When the CFR and Trilateral Commission unpegged the U.S. dollar from the gold reserve, a new age of deregulation, consumerism, and radical materialism was ushered in, causing the baby boomer generation to quickly transmogrify into the 1980s hyper 
materialist me generation. On an ecological level, a new ethic of conservationism had begun to move from the fringes into the mainstream, replacing the former pro-industrial ethic of the producer-creator society that had historically governed the best of Western civilization. Chief among the creators of this new conservation ethic, which replaced the idea of protecting humanity from empire with protecting nature from mankind, was none other than Julian Huxley himself. During the same year that he co-founded the World Wildlife Foundation, Huxley drafted the Morgue's Manifesto, 1961, as the organizing manifesto for the modern ecology movement, pitting human civilization in stark contrast to the supposedly closed mathematical equilibrium of nature. Huxley co-founded the WWF with Arch Malthusians, Prince Philip, I Want to Be Reincarnated as a Deadly Virus, Mountbatten, and Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. By the mid-1970s, one of the leading neo-Malthusians of that era, Paul Ehrlich, mentored a young protege named John Holdren, and together they produced a stomach-churning manual called Ecoscience in 1977, where the pair wrote, quote, Perhaps those agencies, combined with UNEP and the United Nations population agencies, might eventually be developed into a planetary regime, sort of an international super agency for population, resources, and environment. Such a comprehensive planetary regime could control the development, administration, conservation, and distribution of all natural resources, renewable or non-renewable, at least insofar as international implications exist. Thus, the regime could have the power to control pollution not only in the atmosphere and oceans, but also in such freshwater bodies as rivers and lakes that cross international boundaries or that discharge into the oceans. The regime might also be a logical central agency for regulating all international trade, perhaps including assistance from DCs to LDCs, and including all food on the international market. The planetary regime might be given responsibility for determining the optimum population for the world, and for each region, and for arbitrating various countries' shares within their regional limits. Control of population size might remain the responsibility of each government, but the regime would have some power to enforce the agreed limits." End quote. Considering that these words were written just three years after Henry Kissinger's NSSM 200 report that transformed U.S. foreign policy doctrine from pro-development to pro-population reduction, Holdren's 1977 words should not be taken lightly. During the ensuing decades, Holdren became close friends with a Harvard-based Rhodes scholar and mathematician named Eric Lander, who led the Human Genome Project from 1995 to 2002. Lander announced the success of the unveiling of the fully sequenced human genome in 2003, saying, quote, The Human Genome Project represents one of the remarkable achievements in the history of science. Its culmination signals the beginning of a new era in biomedical research. 
biology is being transformed into an information science, end quote. Commenting on the potential for steering human evolution made possible by Lander's Human Genome Project and the new develops in mRNA CRISPR technology then unfolding, Sir Richard Dawkins wrote in 2006, quote, In the 1920s and 1930s, scientists from both the political left and right would not have found the idea of designer babies particularly dangerous, though of course they would not have used that phrase. Today, I suspect that the idea is too dangerous for comfortable discussion, and my conjecture is that Adolf Hitler is responsible for the change. I wonder whether, some 60 years after Hitler's death, we might at least venture to ask what the moral difference is between breeding for musical ability and forcing a child to take music lessons, or why it is acceptable to train fast runners and high jumpers, but not to breed them. I can think of some answers, and they are good ones, which would probably end up persuading me. But hasn't the time come when we should stop being frightened even to put the question?" End quote. It wasn't long before Holdren found himself enjoying greater power than he had ever imagined, as science czar and architect of Obama's quote-unquote evidence-based program of governance, which involved maximizing funding for green tech to decarbonize humanity under new systems of global governance. Lander worked closely with Holdren as the co-chair of Obama's Science Council and also with Whitehead Institute President David Baltimore on the creation of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Together, Lander and Baltimore oversaw a major 2015 conference on the quote-unquote new era of biomedical research that unveiled a new gene modification technology known as CRISPR, involving the use of enzymes and RNA found in E. coli, which were discovered to have the ability to target DNA sequences and induce various mutations. While it is obvious that this powerful technology offers potential good to humanity as a tool to eliminate hereditary diseases in humans and crops. CRISPR's incredible power to fundamentally alter human DNA forever can do unimaginable harm if put into the wrong hands. At the historic International Summit on Human Gene Editing in December 2015, conference chairman David Baltimore echoed the creepy words of Julian Huxley during his keynote speech, quote, Over the years, the unthinkable has become conceivable. We are on the cusp of a new era in human history, end quote. In January 2021, John Holdren congratulated Eric Lander for being appointed Joe Biden Biden's science czar, technically director of White House Science and Technology Policy, the position formerly held by Holdren. In this position, Lander has overseen the reactivation of every Obama-era science policy as part of a technocratic overhaul of the U.S. government in conformity with the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Agenda, using the vast power of the Emergency Authorization Act to bypass the FDA and steamroll gene therapy technologies passing themselves off as vaccines, a new social experiment has begun. CRISPR technology is already being hailed as a key to solving the new mutating strains of COVID-19 and is being used as a quote-unquote vaccine for certain tropical diseases 
as of this writing. The obvious connection between eugenics organizations of yesterday and the rise of modern mRNA operations associated with Gavi and Oxford's AstraZeneca, unveiled by investigative journalist Whitney Webb earlier this year, should be kept firmly in mind. Will this technology be used by modern-day heirs of Nazi-sponsoring eugenicists? in an effort to pick up where Dr. Mengel left off? Or will we see this biotechnology serve the interests of humanity under a multipolar paradigm that cherishes national sovereignty, human life, family, and faith? For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Friday, June 18, 2021. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.